On this week's show, join host John McElroy and a panel of cybersecurity experts as they discuss the danger of hacking cars, especially autonomous vehicles. Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for AutoLine This Week has been provided by Madcat. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine This Week, where the topic of discussion today is all going to be about cybersecurity. More specifically, about how the U.S. military can work with the American automotive industry and vice versa. We're at a special cybersecurity conference right now sponsored by the National Defense Industry Association, and I've got three cybersecurity experts joining me today, including Anuja Sanalkar. She is the Vice President of Engineering and Operations in North America for a company called TowerSec. Bryson Borg is the founder and the CEO of a company called Grimm, and Brigadier General Mike Stone is also joining us, representing the military side of what's going on in cybersecurity. Great to have all three of you on AutoLine this week. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay, I'm going to throw out the, the, the first question here. All the car companies, all the automotive suppliers are working on cybersecurity. A few years ago, not so much. Today, very much so. Uh, General Stone, I'm going to ask you, what can the military do for the automotive industry? What can the automotive industry do for the U.S. military? Well, the first thing this morning we heard Lieutenant General Cardone, the Army Cyber Commander, come in um, and kind of surprise some people in the audience about the idea of intelligence sharing at the ISEC level or the information sharing of that, that classified information to, to, the, to the auto companies. That's something we really weren't expecting to come out of a three-star general's mouth today. But one of the things we've been working on for a long time with the Michigan National Guard, um, the National Guard Bureau, the United States Army, is talent. So there's a really strong alignment. In a, you know, the national security strategy in, in the White House realizes in cybersecurity we have to have a, a workforce and talent wins and the automotive industry knows that the military knows that so how do we uh, align talent talent growth K through 12 we heard a lot today uh, and then from K through 12 when you get into say the, the military five six years ago nobody thought about the guard and reserve being used in cyber and now we're building cyber force structure in the National Guard and the Army Reserve um, so can that talent be trained by the military, get clearances, secret clearances, top secret clearances, and then come back to the community, be citizen soldiers and airmen, and then work for automotive companies, work for TARDEC, Tank Command here in Michigan. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis on that, all the way at the national level and the local level, and working um, with Governor Snyder uh, and his cyber strategy in Michigan to make sure that we've got that talent, attract it, and retain it. Um, and that's what we're looking for in the Michigan National Guard, is how do we attract talent coming off active duty? How do we grow it? internally and how do we plug it into so those citizen soldiers have great cyber jobs in Michigan. Very interesting getting into uh, the talent side of it all and, and we'll want to get back to that but Anuja I want to ask you same thing how can the U.S. military work with the automotive industry and vice versa when it comes to cybersecurity? So I definitely think information sharing is the first most key thing that we can work together. Um, if in a central repository like the auto ISAC, if uh, input comes from the government and the intelligence side, there's so much that we can learn from here. Uh, it will be extremely useful to the auto industry. I think talent is another one. Uh, if, if there can be help from the government and from the defense side to train uh, cybersecurity professionals the way we have trained them on the defense side, that would be phenomenal. 
And you know, I think from the auto industry side, what what we could teach uh, the defense is how to create innovation on a you know dime, how to create turnkey solutions in an agile manner, uh, very quickly, how to listen to the voice of the customer and anticipate future technologies and try to absorb that in faster. The government does a great job, defense programs do a great job, but they are more forward-looking in terms of time and technologies we're developing today will probably be out in the field you know several years later uh, in the auto industry it's a little closer in timeline so that's something we can uh, you know take up there okay information sharing talent Bryson you work with both the military and private industry what's your input on this debate here how do we get both to collaborate to be able to fight cyber problems well, like, like everything to do with people, it's a question of the incentives. And uh, with the military, the incentive is, how am I assured to accomplish the mission that I need to accomplish? And it has to happen now, and it has to happen this way for these effects. On the civilian side, it's a question of, um, what is the consumer trying to purchase? How do I capture market? How do I please the consumer? And so with both of those incentives, you're going to see different cultures and different behaviors. On the military, uh, we talked about information sharing. Well, what is the military going to share? They're going to share the intelligence of what are those possible pernicious activities that could happen. Because the reality is we're all in that same boat where the battlefield is no longer over somewhere else. Now with cyber warfare and everything being interconnected, it's here as well. The commercial industry can offer the innovation that they've been working with, the market principles of, hey, this is what works, and those quick acquisition life cycles that they go through and being able to push some of those things back onto the military side. Anuja, you mentioned this, the sharing. Is there a formalized mechanism for this to happen? I know you mentioned ISACs, which I believe is information sharing and analysis centers. I think I got that right. But is there an actual collaboration happening between the military and the automotive industry right now? So not so much the military and the automotive industry right now, but definitely government and the automotive industry. So the auto ISAC is a formal structure. It has been set up so that the government can input uh, information. Um, the information is then usable by the members of the auto industry and part of the community. And uh, it's actionable, usable information. So I would say, a little more it needs to be done to bring some to bring the defense side in there because you know the defense side has access to a lot more information for example on the defense side we are used to creating a very formal uh, formidable adversary and the things that we would see here we won't necessarily consider in the consumer world uh, up until now so there are so many things that can be transitioned from here in a in a manner that is you know conducive to not leakage and um, you know sensitive issues like that, but it can definitely be done. John, if I can clarify for the audience, um, in our national structure, really the ISACs, information sharing, is really coordinated by the Department of Homeland Security, but a lot of the data is, or the intelligence is generated by the military shared at the national level. So I don't want to confuse the audience to say the military is going to work directly with the auto industry. So the, the, the military, it has its source generation of intelligence. It, it rolls it up. It works closely at the federal level. Um, 
with DHS. We, we don't want the military to be perceived that we're getting in front of D, the Department of Homeland Security and that role. Um, but it, that's why I said earlier, it kind of surprised you when General Cardone up on stage made the comment that he did. It was, it was pleasant to hear um, from where we sat in the audience. Um, the other thing, too, I mean, to build on your question that we haven't really hit on yet is, you know, right here in Warren, Michigan, where you got the tank command, you got TARDEC, the Tank Automotive, um, tank Automotive Research Engineering Center. Um, we had the TARDEC director here, Dr. Paul Rogers. You know, his team in the history of, of working, and, and, I, and I think you, you said it well earlier today, um, in the 1940s and 50s, it's easy to correlate cars, automotive, and military. And it kind of seemed as technology evolved, the military separated uh, from the auto industry. And really, with cybersecurity, we're seeing those converging back together again. So we're seeing more uh, collaboration happening here locally in Southeast Michigan. TARDEC, TACOM, in the auto industry, and cyber is a big opportunity. That's very interesting that that, that topic, cybersecurity, is bringing both those disparate elements back together again. Bryson, how, how serious is this problem? At least when we, you know, we hear a lot about cars getting hacked into, but almost invariably it's these white hat hackers who are out to make a name for themselves. I don't think there's ever been an, an actual attack on cars. So are we blowing this into too much of a, trying to make a big issue out of it that it really isn't, or how do you see it? I think it's not a question of capability, but of motive. And the capabilities are out there. And so what Charlie Miller and Chris Velasic proved was, hey, this is possible. And, and that is these are the guys who hacked into the, the Jeep correct, a year summer. ago. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, so much of the security sector is demonstrating to the public what is the art of the possible, because that begins to capture the imagination of these are, these are the unintended effects, or this could happen. And then that starts to drive and change the behavior. And what we're seeing <laughs> is that uh, while those things have not happened yet by somebody that is not a white hat, as we move toward autonomous driving vehicles and certainly the military experiences with this with um, very contested environments where uh, the motive is a little more there for that, um, you're, you're seeing that come to bear in those compromises and those kinds of challenges. And certainly, as we move to vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to pedestrian, vehicle to infrastructure and smart cities, all of that interconnectedness is going to increase the surface area where the art of what is possible is uh, the limit of your imagination. Yeah. Anuja? That is absolutely true. Um, it has been demonstrated that it is possible. Uh, it is a matter of motivation why somebody would do what they want to do. I'm going to flip that a little bit around and say, um, also there's an economic angle now. For the first time after what happened in summer, uh, NHTSA came out, uh, well, before that, the OEM involved actually did a voluntary recall. So there's a cost associated with that, right? So now it hits somebody's bottom line. There is, there's an economic equation at play. Uh, NHTSA came out and levied a fine for the first time because of, so it doesn't matter if it was a petty hacker, or it was a cyber criminal, or it was a white hat researcher, it resulted in an economic equation uh, coming about. That itself prompts the auto industry, now we need to put an investment in that's proportional to, you know, what, what kind of a catastrophe, economic catastrophe we would face if something like where this would happen, irrespective of the motivation of the person doing it. So that itself, I think, is worth a, a reason enough uh, for this uh, for for you know investment to be made in that in that area. 
that, that is one of the, the benefits of that hack attack that happened last summer. Right. It, I would equate it. Now people know no. there is a cost. There is, exactly. And they know how to calculate that cost. Yeah. And I would equate it to health insurance, right? You, you pay for it, but, uh, or if you don't have it, you hope you don't fall seriously sick. But if you do, then you think, okay, I, now I should have had that insurance. So, you know, investing in cyber security for your vehicles is important from that perspective that if it were that yours is the target uh, for any reason, then you would have been wiser to have paid that money up front. General Stone, how serious do you see this issue? As I said, you know, there, there's been no fielded attack yet. On cars, <laughs> on cars, I hate uh, yeah, to uh, add. Well, you know, just look at the proliferation of headlines in cyber. You know, a, a number of years ago, Stutnecks and, and people didn't understand what that was and the attacks on, you know, um, in Iran on the centrifuges. Um, headlines go by every day. So from a military perspective and the no-fail missions that we have and working all the way up to the top secret level, there is a lot of interest and concern and you see these ever-expanding Department of Defense budgets. On the civilian side, um, one of the things that we're very focused on in the National Guard are working with, with, with the Governor's Association is that SCADA attack, you know, when the lights go out. Because if somebody does a, a very simple denial of service attack on the grid and it goes down, um, bad things happen. And that's where your National Guard gets involved in things like that. So we're, we're very concerned about how easy the price point is for bad guys to buy you know, malware for 50, 100 bucks to do something bad. Um, we're also seeing changes in patterns, you know, between anonymous and doxing and, and the strategic effect is the Sony attacks um, were kind of creative and unique, you know, by a foreign nation to create an effect. So cyber effects, I think, are going to be part of the landscape going forward in America. Um, and that will have a profound effect on it. So um, it's an ever-changing ball game, and I look at it from my state hat, National Guard hat, and at the federal level, um, and we're trying to figure out how that all fits in from a, a local incident to a national level problem back to a local incident. So, Bryson, how do you advise your clients? How, how do you protect a, against the very thing that General Stone's talking about? Or can you protect against it? <laughs> Uh, hire some wonderful cybersecurity uh, industry uh, <laughs> consultants that work in Michigan. Um, what, I, what I like to explain to them is your defense is nothing more than the attacker's test bed. The commercial off-the-shelf products that you're using to defend your network, defend your hosts, to defend your infrastructure uh, are generally readily available to them and nothing that they're going to attack you with is not something that they haven't thoroughly tested against that infrastructure and that configuration. And they have the patience to do the reconnaissance to slowly iterate through and work their way through all of those layers of security, um, notwithstanding that sometimes those layers of security introduce vulnerabilities for exploitation themselves. So that is the reason that so often a pernicious actor is never found until, they, actually, they're found for two reasons. One, by accident, they make a mistake, or two, a patch, a random patch comes out, the infrastructure puts it in place, and suddenly something trips, and they're like, well, what was that? And that's when they've now found an actor in their midst. And so what I counsel is you need a dynamic defense. And those aren't just words. You need to find something that is unique for you. You need to look at how you can be heterogeneous. You need to look at what are your critical assets and information and actual infrastructure. Prioritize those and treat those differently so that you are not 
putting everything, and once they're in, all the eggs in the basket have been taken. Anuja, one of the terms I've heard is uh, a defense in depth. Is TowerSec addressing that, that kind of protection that Bryson was just uh, talking about, uh, of having uh, a dynamic defense, but also having several layers of it? So, uh, so TowerSec builds intrusion detection systems, but uh, Harman that recently purchased has, also, has a defense in depth strategy, has a five plus one layer, uh, layered approach to cybersecurity. I would say in general cybersecurity in layers is, is good because it creates some amount of diversity and it creates uh, the ability to not have all your holes lined up together. But it's really important how artfully it's done because, you know, like Bryson said, it can, if not done correctly, increase the attack surface. It can create problems in terms of more exposed vulnerabilities. So it really depends on the art of doing it. General Stone, you mentioned at the very beginning getting the talent. How do you identify talent? How, how do you nurture talent? How do you how do you find the talent that you need? Well, first of all, for us in the National Guard and the military, most of your talent's coming right out of high school. And we're learning to recruit a cyber warrior is different than an infantryman. Um, so really, we've got to change our, our messaging. But one of the things that happens is there's a tremendous vetting process in all branches of the military. You know, one in seven recruits today don't even get through that process. And then in all of our cyber IT jobs, just in the Michigan National Guard alone, we have over 600 part-time cyber IT jobs. And most of them come with a security clearance. So just getting through all those gates as a young man or woman to get through that. Uh, and then we send them off to military school and they come back home. Um, what we're also doing is we're using uh, our state guard tuition bills to go after and target these young men and women to go get their IT and cyber NIST NSA certificates. Um, and we're seeing a large growth in, in 18 to 25 year olds going, uh, maybe not to get a four year degree and using their GI Bill money, but just to join, uh, do that, get a few certificates, get a job and keep growing their, their IT or cyber career. Um, and the other one is we're trying to get aggressively seek talent off active duty. So those that, that maybe are cyber talent on active duty that want to come home to Michigan or make relocate to Michigan, um, we've, we've had a few big wins. Um, you know, I won't say name any names that have come back to Michigan and have, and have helped us in the cyber field um, that were national level experts. Um, we're looking at mid-level talent too. Um, but anytime we can align with, with corporations in Michigan and know what their, C, their CIO, HR demands are, and we can align them geographically on the ground in Michigan, like Grand Rapids or to, you know, right here in the Detroit area, um, we're happy to listen and, and dual recruit. Are the automotive companies and suppliers out rating you of people? They're not rating us. They have talked to us and they're interested in what we have and we keep going back to them in, in military speak. What are your requirements for cyber talent? Uh, we've been working with the utility companies for a while and we've got guardsmen in key cybersecurity positions in, in both your major utility companies. Um, it's a very dynamic relationship and we've done even some boot camp like stuff with Wayne County Community College for retraining vets and guardsmen into cyber fields and working collaboratively. We route a lot of talent to the tank command and TARDAC here um, into the civilian government positions in cyber as well. Bryson, how do you go out and look for talent? And, and do you have to keep, because you work on both the military and, and the private industry side, do you need different skill sets? Certainly you need different clearances. Well, first, I, I, it's worth pointing out that right now there is a shortage of 1.5 million positions for cybersecurity in the country. 
and that's across military, government, public, private. We're all in that same boat. That is a that is something we are all facing. And as a small company, yes, we do have to use different recruiting methods and look for different kinds of personnel depending on which thing we're recruiting. What makes somebody good at cybersecurity is the tricky question. Uh, when we're looking for that, uh, we find that the challenge is that traditional engineers excel in a layer of the stack. So they're very good at their particular discipline and then they make assumptions where that interfaces with other components from a functionality perspective. Cybersecurity engineer needs to look at that problem holistically all at the same time. That's a mindset. On one side, there's this passion and this curiosity that imbues them that they always have been looking at problems that way. The other is the multidisciplinary, excuse me, the multidisciplinary mindset of trying to look at multiple pieces come together. Innovation happens when disciplines converge. Cybersecurity is the same kind of thing because the edges are where the threat is and the edges of your system are where they're going to exploit those assumptions and co-opt the system. So Anuja, where do you find these people? I mean, 1.5 million jobs open in cybersecurity? That, that, that's astonishing. And how, how do you even train to become a cybersecurity expert? So th that's where part of the problem lies, right? You don't have traditional schooling where you can go get a degree in cybersecurity. You, there are courses that you can do these days. Uh, but if you look at the pure disciplines, there's really no cybersecurity as a pure discipline. So you train in engineering, you train in an underlying uh, technical field. And then, like Bryson said, it's all about the art. Security is a mindset. And what we look for is somebody who can think out of the box, somebody who can take something that's built with some design specification and flip it on its head and say, what if I you know, did something XYZ with it? How would the system react? Somebody who inherently thinks like that, we, uh, and you'll be surprised at all the various places we found good talent like that. So sometimes you'll be surprised by a fresh uh, graduate coming out of college. Sometimes it'll be a veteran uh, from a parallel industry. So people in the aerospace, they think you know differently. We've had success there. People who've done telecommunications, we've had success there. So it all, we bring people with that attitude and then we tra cross train them in the, 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 the domain that we are in and so they get that knowledge. There, there really is no easy way of doing it. You have to train on the job. You know, in uh, Silicon Valley, there's uh, an interesting approach. I'll use Tesla as an example because we're talking automotive here. It's created what it calls its wall of fame. And it invites people to attack its cars and to attack its corporate computers as well. And if you're able to, to hack in, you get on the Tesla Wall of Fame, or the, the Hall of Fame. And they publicly post who's been able to hack into their systems. It's worked so well that they're posting cash prizes. And I think it does two things for them. It shows where their vulnerabilities are. It also identifies talent for them. Anuja, is, is this the way to do it, of maybe going after talent that way? It's a great way to do it. It's one of the ways you can do it. The traditional auto industry is a little more mindful and fearful about what happens with all these things that we find out because there's the looming threat of regulation, fines, you know, oversight uh, that this industry is constantly living with. Tesla has broken the barrier and gone outside of that. They, they have a care a damn attitude towards it. And part of the reason why they embrace that ideology uh, is is this and is definitely successful. There are bug bounty programs. Uh, United Airlines came out with a bug bounty program, and so I think 
if the the fear of regulatory bodies is is not huge, I think it's a, it's a great technique. One of the things we haven't talked about is, is that we get the Auto Cyber Challenge in Michigan. Um, we bring in young people, they work with engineers in the, in the big three, and they hack cars, and we're trying to get that young interest here uh, locally. The other thing, too, that you know, I learned this from Governor Snyder, is he worked in Silicon Valley. Your retention rates in Silicon Valley are horrible, and the retention rates in Michigan are much better. So one of the things we're really working on is the whole ecosystem. What are the what are the ecosystem things we can do to get young people involved? You know, Michigan, of course, excels in the high school robotics and the STEM, um, the engineers per capita in Michigan, that kind of thing. So how do we grow the cyber talent and create an ecosystem where they can stay and play and have fun? Um, we, we've, we've created with a lot of partners, the Michigan Economic Development Corp., the Michigan Cyber Range, uh, with nonprofit partners, the state of Michigan, and there's the Michigan Civilian Cyber Corps. So we're doing a lot of hacking, defending events, uh, you know, red teaming, that type of thing. And you know, we're we're having our guard soldiers and airmen play with them, and then those guard soldiers and get to go play with NSA and Cyber Command on the top secret side, and then come back and play with civilians in Michigan. So we're trying to create those opportunities. Maybe they're different than Tesla, but uh, I would argue that you know. You know, watch out. <laughs> Michigan's not going anywhere, and uh, I, th I think that winning the re talent retention game is going to be big. Interesting point. Bryson, uh, what would you suggest that get done? How, how do you, I mean, there's 1.5 million jobs. That, that really uh, sticks in my mind. How do you create the ecosystem that General Stone's talking about? Any suggestions? Uh, that, that ecosystem is something that needs to be uh, part of the STEM push with engineering and education and driving that all that much earlier and driving that awareness uh, certainly it helps in quotation marks to have that those public events that really <laughs> jar the public and oh my gosh this can happen um, but tying that back into at a younger age of allowing that curiosity uh, if we remember when hacking started to become public uh, there were all of these barriers to allowing these young teens kids young adults who were not invited to attack infrastructure, but we did it because they were interested and they were trying to push those bounds and they were exploring. And there were uh, very, very heavy handed response to it at that time. I think we've become a little bit more forgiving and it helps that there are companies uniquely positioned like Tesla to invite that as a part of a corporate engagement. But all of us, both government and industry, need to constantly be pushing that engagement all the way at the youngest through the schooling system, uh, possibly introducing uh, an apprenticeship program so that not everything has to go through a traditional university. Look, with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. Fascinating discussion. want to thank all of you for uh, having come here and, and taught me a few things here. It's a growing industry, and whoever thought there might have to be an apprenticeship in hacking. Hope <laughs> you all enjoyed this show as much as I did. Underwriting for Autoline Underwriting for Autoline this week by has been provided by Madcap.